Almighty God, pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be ever acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, a happy new year to those who celebrated at this time. This is not the sermon that I would choose to preach today. I would choose to preach on the depths of our sin and the great heights of God's love towards us in his Son, Jesus Christ. I would preach about how God so loved us, he gave his Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins, of how he so loved the world that he gave that Son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. That is what I would choose. But that is not the text we have before us today. The text before us today indeed does talk about the heights of love, but they are the heights of love from humankind to God, rather than the love of God for us. Particularly, we are going to see the love of one woman for her Savior. And I want to warn you at the outset that some of us are going to find what God's Word shows us today both inconvenient and a little bit uncomfortable. Now in Mark chapter 14, and come with me to verse 1, we're going to see this in three scenes. So far in Mark's Gospel, Jesus has revealed himself to the people. He's shown that he is the Son of God. He is the Christ who comes to save his people. And meanwhile, we've seen hostility brewing between him and the religious leaders. And it is that hostility we see in the first scene, verses 1 and 2. It's now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The chief priests and the scribes are seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him, for they said, not during the feast lest there be an uproar from the people. Two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, you must understand this is not just a time reference. It is a reminder for us of what will happen when he does die, that he will become that Passover sacrifice that will take away our sins, like we saw last week. But it also helps us imagine the scene, because... It means that at this time, into the ancient capital of Jerusalem, are streaming huge Passover crowds. Their historian estimates, perhaps, two and a half to three million people will be gathered here for Passover. It's swarming. It's packed. It's patriotic. It would only take a spark to set off a riot. The religious leaders know this, but they also know that if a riot were to happen, the Romans would be all too happy to take away their power and impose direct rule. And so, as much as they do want to stone Jesus on the spot, they don't dare. They fear doing it during the feast, as they say, lest there be an uproar from the people. Therefore, they, they're looking for a way to kill him by stealth. But suddenly, at this point, we change scene. We are no more there in Jerusalem with the wicked leaders. We're outside Jerusalem, in Bethany. Picture this scene now. We're in this village where Jesus has been going each evening after spending the day in Jerusalem teaching. He's now in Simon the leopard's house, 
He's reclining at table when somehow, suddenly, seemingly out of nowhere, a woman is coming towards him, holding in her hands this alabaster flask. It looks a little bit like marble. And then she breaks this flask. She draws near to Jesus and pours its contents on his head. And then at once, the scent of costly, pure nard starts to fill the house. Now notice this. Mark has not given this woman any introduction. He has not given this woman any name. He does not record for us one single word she said. All we know of her is she sought an opportunity to honor her savior, and she took it. We're not even told what she was thinking. Was she confident and composed, or was she shaking with nerves as she poured that ointment over the head of the Lamb of God? Perhaps she even questioned herself. Is it the right thing to do? What would Jesus say? Well, we are about to find out exactly what Jesus will say and think about what she's done. But first, we're going to see what the rest present thought about it. For, for verse 4, there were some, by which it probably means a mix of his disciples and some of those who dwelled in the house, some who say to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like this? This ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii. That's, that's almost a year's wages for a laborer. And given to the poor, and they're scolding her. I want you to notice how fast their hearts have turned to wickedness. No sooner had they saw a great act of love for our Lord than they had tried to grasp for a way to criticize it and turn against her. You can kind of imagine the scene, can't you? saying to each other, she shouldn't have done that. That's so wasteful. Does she hate the poor? Throwing away ointment like that. It's an evil thing she's done. And I wonder whether we can also almost imagine our own voices amongst them. I wonder whether at some level we're thinking, well, they kind of have a, have a valid point. I mean, best part of a year's wages just poured out on this, on this man's head. Surely it's, it's excessive. Surely it's thoughtless. At some level, I think our hearts are a little bit like theirs, aren't they? We want to figure out whether her act of love was absolutely necessary and justified. How quickly we become a little bit like the Pharisees. How quickly our functional principle becomes to ask what the minimum requirements are instead of what's the maximum ways to show our love for the Lord who loves us so much. And although I know we wouldn't say this out loud, but I wonder whether sometimes we think things like this. We think, surely the Lord doesn't really approve of this kind of excess, does he? Or, We're saved by faith and not by works. It's, we don't need this kind of thing. Or, or so long as I do my duty, at least as well as the person in the next pew, surely the Lord is he's quite content with that, isn't he? Well, if this is how we are thinking, I want us to pay very careful attention to what our Lord Jesus Christ is about to say because he is about to issue his judgment on the woman and her act of excessive and thoughtless love. Verse 6, Jesus says, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. you whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. Deep down, we all knew that she'd done a beautiful thing, didn't we? I'm sure those who were grumbling there, many of them realized it was a beautiful thing. And the Lord asks, 
Why do you trouble her? I want us to notice what he does not say. He does not say, explain to me the logic by which you reached your conclusions. He's not interested in that. He says, why do you trouble her? Because he's aiming at their hearts. Why, when they saw such wonderful love poured out for the Lord Jesus, did their hearts start to scheme and their lips want to scold? And why do, why do we too, all too often, when we hear of someone doing something great or extravagant or zealous in love for Christ, somehow straight away start thinking of ways to find fault? I'll give you one example. When godly Christians step forward for full-time ministry out of love for Christ, who do you think the first people are to try to discourage and dissuade them? It's not non-Christians. Normally, it's their own Christian family and friends, particularly if it's going to mean them giving up a well-paid or high-status job in the eyes of the world. Leave her alone, Jesus says. Why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing. But I wonder whether for some of us, the reason why this woman makes us uncomfortable like this is because somewhere we still remember the times when long ago our hearts were like hers, when they burnt to find opportunities to pour out lavish love for our Lord. Perhaps there was a time that you remember too, when you dreamt big things. Perhaps how you would go and serve the poor and the afflicted, or how, how you're going to open your home to the destitute, or how you are going to become a missionary and go to the furthest parts of the earth with the light of Christ, or even perhaps to those a little bit closer. Perhaps at one time you had other great dreams stirred in you by the Spirit. It is before what Jesus calls the concerns of the world and the deceits of riches sprung up and choked our love, leaving us, what, withered stumps rather than mighty trees full of the fruits of love which we would now be. And then we see this woman, this woman who has not compromised, who has not called her zeal, who has not quenched the spirit, and deep down it reminds us and it upsets us because it shows us just how far we've fallen from our first love. And now I know that this is not true of all of us. In fact, I know that there are some among us whose lives really are lived as a pleasing sacrifice to the Lord in love. But I fear that it may be true of many of us, and it may be true of you too. Whatever the reasons this woman makes us feel uncomfortable, let us first of all heed the Lord's words. Leave her alone. Do not trouble her, or those like her. But what about their argument? What are the argument of the grumblers about the poor? Well, the first thing that we do have to say is that nobody here is arguing that you should not do good for the poor. In fact, this is a basic demand of the law. We saw it in Deuteronomy. It would be a sin for them not to be generous to the poor. And as Jesus himself says, you always have the poor with you. you whenever you want, you can do good for them. But again, I want you to notice what he did not say. He did not say, whenever she wants, she can do good for them. He said, turning to those who are grumbling, whenever you want, you 
can do good for them. It is by implication a rebuke, isn't it? They're so fast to say how this woman should have used her resources for the poor, but seemingly slow to do it themselves. In fact, John's gospel shows us that their ringleader, Judas, far from giving to the poor, was stealing from the money bag to line his own pockets. If they're so worried about the poor, good. But let them start by being generous with their own money before they worry about what she does with hers. I think there's a lesson for us too in that, isn't there? Jesus goes on. He adds, you will not always have me. Which is to say, it's a particularly wonderful thing she's done because she's done it whilst he was still physically present with them, before his death and ascension. She showed his love and he was delighted. And I want us to mark this lesson too. That day, not one of the disciples was commended by Jesus, despite all the talk going on about prioritizing the poor and being pious. Not one. But this woman, who showed her love, and showed in her love a true and living faith, receives here one of the warmest commendations you will ever find in Scripture from Jesus. But perhaps you want to say to me, Pastor, Jesus is now ascended. We can't do the same as her, can we? Well, yes and no. Yes, he has ascended. You cannot physically pour out your love upon him in the same way. But no, that does not mean that you cannot love him like she did. Very often, loving him is going to be shown in loving those whom he loves, caring for the weak, giving to the poor, bringing hope to the hopeless. Actually, if we think about it, there is no shortage of ways in which we can love Jesus. The question is whether we have a shortage of love for Jesus. Jesus continues his commendation. Verse 9, he adds something wonderful. He says, she has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. First, she has done what she could. That which she was able to do for him, she has done it. Not one drop she kept back. She saw the opportunity and she took it. And he says of that love, that it actually had for him a very great significance, that he, in fact, had anointed his body beforehand for burial. Imagine the honor of that, of her being told that she has anointed him for that death by which he will save mankind from sin. Now, we don't know whether she understood it at the time or intended it, but we do know that this is how Christ honored it. But the greatest part of the commendation is next. It is when he says... And wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Take a moment to think about this. What is this gospel of which he speaks? This gospel is that one message which is at the very center of Christian faith. It is that wonderful message that Jesus came and died for our sins, that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. That is the gospel. It is what St. Paul calls God's power for salvation to everyone who believes. It is the single most important message of all time. And to that, we see Jesus tie forever this one woman and her one act of love. But why does he do that? Is it not because this is the kind of love that our Savior truly seeks from us? in response to his grace. 
Yes, that is an inconvenient truth. Yes, that does make us feel uncomfortable. But like it or not, our Savior's deep desire is, is not really for people to keep pews warm or just to do what is absolutely necessary. What he really desires is those who will love him richly, excessively, lavishly, like this woman. But perhaps you will say to me, Pastor, do you not know that Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commands? Yes, he did. Amen. But what did he say? Note the order. First, he said, if you love me, and then you will keep my commands. The keeping of the commands comes because of the love. Yes, it's true. If you don't see the keeping of the commands, we know we don't love him. But do you really think that this woman who loves Jesus so much, do you think that she will not also delight to do what he says? It is those who do not love Jesus who try to wriggle out of obedience and twist his words, not those who love him. Which brings us to our third scene, verses 10 and 11, where we see someone who did not love him. For here we meet Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, Mark you, one of the twelve, and he goes to the chief priests in order to betray Jesus to them. The chief priests hear it. They are glad and promise to give him money, and he seeks an opportunity to betray him. The irony is rich here, isn't it? He who earlier had been amongst those scolding the woman, saying, you should have sold that ointment and given to the poor, now wickedly sells our saviour to line his own pockets. She, by her love, had delighted our Lord, but he, by his evil, had only made the wicked high priests glad. And so whilst what she did that day is preached everywhere the gospel goes throughout the world, Kuala Lumpur included, as a memorial of her love. Judas will now have his own memorial, for he will be known throughout the world as the one who wickedly betrayed our Lord. The contrast you see is immense. Both of them, if you think about it, are deeply consumed with love. The woman loves her Savior, our Lord, and it shows. Yet Judas loves the world in its riches, and that shows too. And I take it that these two are not put together here by accident. I take it that it is meant to make us pause and ask where our own love is. Let's think about ourselves for a little. Which is the more likely? That we make a sacrifice for our bank balance or our pension fund, or for the kingdom of God? Which is more likely? If one day we realize we don't have to work for a living, would we pour out our time for Christ or would we spend it on the fleeting pleasures of this world? If we had but one wish, where, what would we use it for? Would we use it for some worldly desire or for some response to the gospel? We could go on with such thoughts. It may well be for some of us, that yes, we do indeed know and trust Christ. That's right. But somehow when we look at that woman, we do still feel uncomfortable, don't we? Because we realize that our love is not yet what it should be. But listen to the words of our Lord. Do not trouble her. 
Let us trouble ourselves. Perhaps we might make William Cowper's prayer our own. This is what he prays. He prays, Lord, it is my chief complaint that my love is weak and faint. Yet I love thee and adore. Oh, for grace to love thee more. And let us not forget that we have all the more reason to love him than that woman had. Why do I say that? Well, yes, of course, she knew that he had come to save her, but we, we know that he has indeed done it. We know he has saved not just her, but all his people, and we know the dreadful price of love that that cost him. We know what happened a few days later, how he was nailed on the wondrous cross, how he poured out his soul in love for our salvation. If she who knew so little could love so much, how much more we, who have before him the wonders of his amazing love on the cross, how much more should we love him with all we have and all we are? As Isaac Watts puts it in our final hymn, were the whole realm of nature mine that were a present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Inconvenient and uncomfortable it may be, but to our Lord and Savior, it is a beautiful thing. Let's pray. Mighty Father, we pray that you would stir up our hearts to love you rightly. That you would help us to see the example of this woman and her great love for your son. That we would do likewise. Work in our hearts by your spirit. Help us to respond to the great love you have shown us on the cross. Pray, Father, you would also teach us to encourage others in their zeal. That together we would all live lives of love to your praise and glory. Amen.